Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Tell me, is the DeLorean not one of the coolest sets that we've ever had, right? One of my daughters is a lover of all things vintage, and she loves that car, right? And especially the fact that the door opens. Um, and I know if you're new either to New Spring or you're new to this series, you're probably wondering a couple of things. Number one, um, what's the Summer of Love title all about? And number two, what's... Um, What's uh, the DeLorean doing on stage, right? Because if you are familiar with the Summer of Love, you're thinking, okay, that puts us, what, late 60s or so, and you're thinking, all right, the DeLorean, not particularly contemporary to the Summer of Love. I get it. I totally get it. And I should say, and you can tell, hopefully, by looking at me, that the Summer of Love was a little while before I discovered America. I wasn't here for that. Um, But we use the Summer of Love. This is the second series that we've done where we've talked a little bit about the Summer of Love because it's sort of ushers us into the discussion of where we are as a culture when we talk about love. Because when all of these young people descended on the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, one of the big statements they made was that the idea of love that had been presented to them all their life didn't work. And that we should give up on a forever kind of love and just make the most out of whatever love you could manage to make happen in the moment. Love whoever you're with, as long as that works, great. When it doesn't work, move on, go be with somebody else. And so the truth is, I have to give them credit for the fact about being genuine and authentic and open about that belief, because now in the United States, we sort of have that belief permeating our society, we just don't say it very much, because let's face it, it doesn't make a great you know, um, best man toast at a wedding reception, right? Say, give up on a forever kind of love, just be with whomever you can. That doesn't work well at weddings. I mean, we want forever love, elsewise we wouldn't be getting married and making wedding toasts. But on the other hand, our society's not really sure if a forever kind of love is a doable thing. And so we've kind of used that now for two different series. The first series, we just talked about how do we have a forever kind of love. But this series, we've taken a little bit of a different angle, and we've sort of taken it into the 80s because there was a newspaper columnist who asked the question at one point in the 80s, whatever happened to all the hippies? I mean, there were a lot of them. Now where are they? And the answer was, well, they became yuppies. You know, young urban professionals, they weren't dancing around in the park anymore with flowers in their hair. They were wearing the three-piece suits, working overtime, taking the kids to soccer games on the weekends. And there was a sense in which there was an understanding that, that at some point, 
Love has to grow up and mature. If it's going to be something that we can build a life around, it's got to grow up and mature. So that's why we called this Summer of Love 2, Love Grows Up, and that's why there's an 80s vehicle on stage. Honestly, we started off with a Volkswagen van for the last series. We probably should have had a minivan on stage for this series. That would have been most appropriate, but my dad likes really cool cars, thus the DeLorean. Um, uh, they didn't work real well, but they looked really cool, the DeLoreans did. But anyway, um, so what we're going to talk about in this message. So we've, we've kind of gone really broad in the first few talks because we originally, we originally planned this to be a marriage series, laser beam focused on marriage. But by the time the series was ready to start, our culture had become so tense and so aggravated with each other. And there was so much angst in our culture. We said, well, maybe we should broaden this out a little bit and make it more so that we're not just talking about love and marriage, but we're talking about love in general. But this week, I'm going to go specifically to marriage. We're talking just about marriage, and we're going to talk about how do you, how do you bolster the passion and the romance in your relationship. And I've got to be honest with you. Last night, I went home after the talk, and I told Wendy, I said, this talk was way heavier than I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be kind of a bouncy, happy talk about how do you bolster passion and intimacy in your relationship, and it it wasn't that. And I, you know, as I was going to sleep last night, I was thinking, why did this end up being a heavier talk than I wanted it to be? And I realized that it's been 10 years of experience sitting across from couples where the enemy has just ravaged this part of their relationship. And it's become a very serious thing to me for us to safeguard this very important, very special, very sacred part of our relationship because if we're not careful, Satan will mess it up. His goal is to mess up marriages and this is one of the first places that he goes. So I'm gonna ask you for your indulgence to let me be maybe a little more heavy in this talk than I would normally be just because if, if you feel like, well, Jonathan's being a little heavy here, just know it's because it's that important to me. I've sat across from so many people and thought, I wish I could have talked to him six months ago. I wish I could have talked to him a year ago. And so I take this opportunity as a sacred appointment that maybe I have with you to talk with you about some things that may help you from having difficulties down the road. So hopefully you'll give me a little bit of room to do that. Now, we want to talk about how do you keep the spark alive in your relationship. And Wendy and I talk to premarital couples about this, right? So we teach premarital classes three times a year. And for each of those, we have a group of couples, room full of uh, couples that we're going through this premarital curriculum. Uh, And the curriculum talks about a theory of romantic love that was developed by researcher Robert Sternberg. It's called the triangular theory of love. Doesn't that sound exciting? Right? And what it is, it says there are three components to romantic love. This large-scale Ivy League research says there's three components to romantic love. You can think of it as three legs and one stool. One of those components is commitment. Now, commitment is the volitional choice side that says, I'm all in in this relationship. I'm making a, a, a decision to be in in this relationship. The other, one of the other parts is intimacy. And intimacy is the bond between uh, husband and wife, that bond in romantic love that is this unique, special, deep friendship, or I like to think of it as the stickiness of the relationship, the extent to which these two people are sticky to each other. The third part is passion or romance. So we talk to these couples and we say, what are you going to do in your marriage to bolster commitment? You know, and we have a great conversation on that. What are you going to do to bolster intimacy? And there's a, you know, great conversation on that. And then you ask, what are you going to do to bolster passion in your relationship? And I get two very different responses. 
because we have a, a, you know, an age range there represented in premarital. There are some people that are remarrying and there are some people that are marrying for the first time. Those who are later in life, they're taking notes. Yes, what are we going to do to bolster intimacy? That's a really good question. But there's always somebody there in their very early 20s, right? Wendy and I got married in our early 20s, so I can sort of relate. But there's always somebody there in their early 20s. We ask the question, how are you going to keep the spark alive? And they look at us like, what are you, crazy? You know? Man, we're just trying to keep the spark under control. I, you know, keep the spark alive. I don't know what you're talking about there, you know. And we give them this online assessment. So they go online, all these premarital couples, they go online, they answer all these questions. And part of premarital is we give them the report from that. And at a certain point, in every night of premarital, we send all the couples off on their own, find a little space, and they go through their report. And Wendy and I float around, and do you have any questions? Do you have any questions, you know? One of the pages asks them about the frequency of physical intimacy in their relationship. What are they expecting when they get in? And I'll always kind of smile because one of these couples, I'll, I'll be going around, they'll be a really young couple, and, and uh, I'll say, do you have any questions? No, but you know, um, we both put here every day, but the reason we did that is because there wasn't a multiple times a day option, you know? And, and you kind of just smile. Well, that's great for you, right? Be- <laughs> Because as we're older, we're thinking someday romance is going to meet the real world for y'all and things are going to change a little bit, right? You guys know this. If you've been married for any length of time, all you need is a couple of toddlers screaming in the background. You need, you know, you're trying to pay the bills and you don't have enough money left at the end of the month, you know, or you've got, you've, you've got uh, a stressor. The car is broken down. You've got to pay for a repair you weren't planning on paying for. You're having to work a bunch of extra overtime shifts. Suddenly your work changes your shift. So you work during the day, your spouse works at night. I'm telling you stuff you already know. When, when the real world hits, romance can take a major hit. So the question is, how do we keep spark alive, keep the spark alive when romance meets the real world? And that's what I'm going to talk to you about in this message. Now, kind of an anchor point for us as we get started here is we're going to go to the book of the Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Solomon, in case you're maybe not yet familiar with that book, it's in the Old Testament. It's one of the books that we classify as poetry. And it really is a book of love poems between a man and woman. Very, um, very graphic. Uh, there's certainly a lot of symbolism there, but very graphic, um, passionate love poems between a man and woman. But there are a couple of points in the Song of Solomon where there is kind of like advice on how to keep the spark alive. And we're going to go to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Where, and we're not sure whether it's the man saying this to the woman or the woman saying this to the man. Bible scholars aren't sure. But either way, it says, catch all the foxes. Those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. You go home and you're like, I don't know what Jonathan was talking about. There were foxes and a vineyard. I wasn't really clear. This is obviously part of Song of Solomon has tons of symbolism. We get that. But actually, if you have a garden in your backyard, you're not at all lost on what's going on here, right? We would just change it to catch all the little squirrels and rabbits, you know that go for my tomatoes and cucumbers, right? And we get that we put all this work into that garden and all it takes is a couple of little critters to sneak into your garden to ruin the whole thing and take away all of what you've worked so hard for. And what the Song of Solomon is saying, and this would have been something that they would have understood, vineyards were very common in the Middle East at this time. And so it was very common to understand that not only did you need to work to establish the vineyard, not only did you work to, need to work to, to get it to grow well, but you also needed to work to keep things out of the garden that didn't belong there, because if those things got into the garden, it could ruin all of your hard work. And that's what we're going to talk about 
uh, today. I did a message a couple of years ago about things you can do to bolster passion in the relationship. This is more going to be a talk about things that you have, you've got to keep out of your relationship if you want to keep passion where it needs to be. Now, by the way, there's a few points sort of hidden in this verse that I want to make sure we go over. First of all, it says, catch all the foxes. And man, that really speaks to me as somebody who has sat across from so many couples that were going through difficulties in this part of their relationship is how many couples I've worked with where they will read me the resume of all the foxes that they have caught and then they'll tell me about the foxes that they haven't caught and don't intend to catch. I'll talk to a guy who says, I'm not abusive. I'm generally a nice person. You know, I think that I do a lot to try to add to my family's life, but I am kind of flirtatious and I do have a pornography problem and I don't think those things are gonna go away. Well, at that point, it's sort of like saying, well, I caught a lot of the foxes, but there are a couple major foxes that I just let run rampant. And, you know, at least I should be, I'm owed some credit for the fact that I've caught some of them. But the problem is, if you catch some of the foxes, you're still going to be in trouble because the foxes you didn't catch are going to cause problems. I always think of it, uh, I I had an instructor when I was an undergrad way back in the early 2000s who talked about the uselessness of building a three-sided fort. He said, a three-sided fort, you know, you can put all the work you want into. You can, you can construct six-foot-wide walls on those three sides, but if you leave one side down, that fort is absolutely useless. And that's why the, the Bible's saying we need to catch all the foxes. Don't, don't allow yourself to think that just one or two little issues that could, that could impact your sex life is no big deal, so long as you've handled most of the issues. No, you need to make sure. This is why later on the Bible is going to say to keep the marriage bed undefiled. It means pristine. It means make sure that you've managed all the challenges that might creep in, that Satan might use to mess up this part of your life. And then check this out. He says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes. This is one of the things that I grieve over in the story. Because you know what? I sat across from these people. I have never sat across from, in my 10 years, I've never sat across from a couple I didn't like. I've loved every couple that I've sat across from. And in general, I feel like they're all great people with great hearts. I've never thought that wasn't the case. And so I truly believe that if Satan sent a massive, huge threat right to you that would be smack dab in the face and you could recognize, if, if Satan sent another woman to a man just out of the blue and it's like, all right, here's your opportunity to cheat, I want to believe that that person is a person of character who would say, I would never do that. But Satan never starts big, Satan always starts small. Because there's an understanding that over time, we can always increase There's always a chance to increase it. Satan will go for whatever he'll get you to bite for today, and then he'll just up the ante tomorrow. And that's what the book of Song of Solomon is saying, that it'll be a little thing today, but it'll be a major problem tomorrow. Maybe it's a white lie here or there today, but it becomes a major deception tomorrow. Guys, let me tell you something. You want to shut your wife's heart down to you, and I mean slam it shut, just be deceptive with her. Because not only will you create an issue for what's happened right now, you'll create an issue that that causes her to wonder if you're telling her the truth for the rest of your marriage. You've got to be very, very careful. But, But all it takes is some very little white lies. That's how it starts. And then all of a sudden, we've got a major problem. Catch the, all the foxes, the little foxes. And then look, there's a time stamp before they ruin the vineyard of love. You say, now, Jonathan, do you think that a couple can repair 
after some sort of major rip in the fabric of their marriage? Do you think they can turn it around? Do you think they can heal and, and, and have things be different? Absolutely. I 100% believe that. I wouldn't do what I'm doing if I didn't think that that was the case. But I will tell you this. If there is that rip in the fabric of the relationship, the vineyard will have to be replanted. It's not something that's going to recover tomorrow. I've had well-meaning guys sit in my office and go, you know, I know that I really let my wife down. I know that I really breached her trust. I totally get that, but I'm not doing that anymore. I've really turned my life around. I'm trying to do all of the right things, and I don't understand why she can't just get over it. And what he's saying is, I don't understand why she can't just make the vineyard reappear like this. It doesn't work that way. If the vineyard has been destroyed, the vineyard will have to be replanted, and it's going to take time. But the way to avoid having to go through that season of pain is to catch all the little threats before they cause big damage. So this is where we're at, right? Song Solomon says, catch all the threats, all the little threats, before they do big damage. So that's what I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about four threats that may look small on the front end, but as somebody who works with couples on a regular basis, I'll tell you they can cause big damage. We're just gonna call these four passion zappers. They all start with D. I'm actually not a big alliteration person, but for some reason lately, I don't know, it's just uh, everything starts with the same letter. They all start with D. So uh, here's the first one. The first one is distraction. Distraction. One of the... One of the biggest challenges, and honestly, I told you the little story about the pre-married couple who's definitely seeing things differently than they're going to be long-term. One of the reasons that we all kind of chuckle at that is we understand that while they're in this stage, dating, pre-marriage, the honeymoon, they are so focused on each other. I mean, it's very difficult to get their attention. You ever hang out with, couple, with a couple that's that serious about each other, and you know you double date with them or something, and it's like you're not there. You want to just introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Jonathan, a person at the table, you know, um, because they're completely just laser beam focused on each other. But you know what happens? Rings get slipped on fingers, papers get signed, and suddenly the focus goes in different directions. Not necessarily bad directions, just different directions, because suddenly we have each other. So now we focus on different things. And what can happen is our spouse can go, and this is one of the reasons why couples go from having very high levels of satisfaction during the honeymoon period to almost boomerangs in the other direction and goes to a very low level of satisfaction after the first year. One of the reasons is because often that person was the key part of our focus, and then after we get married, they fall almost to the bottom because we have them. We start focusing on things that seem more urgent, the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, the woman says, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. There is something about fighting for that focus, to not lose that laser beam focus that we have on each other. And, and by the way, this is one of the reasons why, and I'm going to talk later on about having dates or, you know, date nights, but I am always a little cautious about people who act like a date night is the answer to every marital problem. Because you can go on a date and not focus on each other, amen? I mean, I think every married couple knows this. You can plan it, you can put it on the calendar, you can go on a date, but it is feasible, especially with all of the devices that we take on our dates with us and everything else thing that we've got going on, that we could go on a date and focus on everything else but each other. Couples that have kids, have you ever tried to go on a date and not talk about your kids? It's almost impossible, isn't it? It's nearly impossible. Now, that is something that you share together. I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of natural. But imagine 
how much that does to the relationship that we go from intimately focusing on each other when we spend time together to now, even if we do spend time together, we're focused on everything else. Well, let's just take a look at your day, shall we? So let's assume that you start your day out with 24 hours. I'm gonna assume that's the case for you. It's the case for me. I'd like to have more than 24 hours in my day, but this is what I've been given by God. 24 hours every day. And let's assume that you sleep seven hours. I know some of you are thinking that would be lovely, Jonathan, if I, if I could sleep for seven hours. But for now, let's just assume that you are either sleeping for seven hours or you're wishing you were asleep during that time period, right? You're either asleep or trying to be asleep. Um, and then we'll subtract nine hours for work. Now, again, for many of you are thinking that would be like a vacation if I only worked nine hours because I'm working 13, 14 hours a day. Um, but I'm just assuming, say you work an eight-hour work day and you have lunch in there somewhere and a commute back and forth, so nine hours. Um, two hours for an evening meal, time with the kids, which by the way, this is not enough time with your kids, but we're just putting numbers up on the screen here. So you have dinner and time with your kids, that's a couple hours. You, do, you have an hour of must-dos. You gotta take the car to Jiffy Lube, you gotta go to the store, pick up groceries, just normal stuff. You know, you got stuff you gotta do in life, so an hour for that. And then five hours for TV. Now, I know that you think I'm crazy, but I didn't make that number up. That number is a national average, believe it or not, right? Um, and speaking of national averages, let's just throw an hour and a half for social media on there. Now, these numbers are actually a little old, and I would love to tell you that they've gone down, but you probably know the truth. They've actually gone up some. Now, the thing about these numbers is that we now are just measuring screen time. So we think the TV number has gone down, but the social media number, what do you think has happened with that? It's gone up. So at this point, even though I only put six and a half hours on there, the national average is somewhere around seven plus hours of screen time a day. So however it gets divided, um, this is typically where we're at. Um, and then let's just put an hour up on the board for a hobby or leisure, something that you do because it's fulfilling to you, you read, you do something that's you time. Now, how many of you are math experts and have already figured that we are in the hole? Okay, we're in the hole by two and a half hours. So we got a little bit of a problem. Now, you'd say, well, Jonathan, that's good because, you know, I don't do six and a half hours of screen time. That's good for you, but we already have two and a half hours we got to take away somewhere. Notice that on this entire list, we have not put any time for your spouse. There's no time for your spouse, no dedicated time for your spouse on this anywhere. Now, here's the thing about when you have a deficit. So we're in a time deficit situation here. What happens in a deficit is we tend to cut back on the things that are in the would be nice category and we tend to just focus on the musts category. And what tends to happen is when we're in a time deficit situation as probably 90% of us in this room are, when we're in a time deficit situation, we start to cut back on the would be nice things. What will, what will wreck the passion in your marriage is if you start to think that dedicated time for your spouse is a would be nice thing. It'd be nice but we got so much going on right now. We're just so busy, you know? And what, what's crazy to me is people that say, well, it will get better when, you know? And the, the greatest one, and I've heard this like three times in the last three months, when the kids grow up and leave the house, then we'll have time for each other. Listen, if you wait until the kids grow up and leave the house, you aren't gonna know each other when the kids leave. You're gonna wonder who is this person that I'm in this house with and what are we gonna do? I don't know how to be with this person. People say, when I get the master's degree finished, 
when I get that promotion at work, when I don't have to work so many overtime shifts. You know what's happening is they're accidentally, I don't think it's on purpose, they're accidentally putting their marriage in the would be nice category. Well, when I have, when I'm not dealing with a deficit, then we'll make time for the marriage. Can I just warn you ahead of time, you're gonna almost always be dealing with a deficit. That's life, that's life in our world. So what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to slide spouse up from the bottom of the list and slide spouse up toward the top of the list and say, no, 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 dedicated time with my spouse is a must. It is a must if we wanna have a close relationship. I want you to imagine for a minute that I invite you to my house for dinner and there's, let's just say there's a lot of buildup Right, So I write you on, on social media and I say, come to my house for dinner, it will be epic. It will be the best dinner of our lives. You know? and, and I just keep telling you, come to my house, this is gonna be amazing, it's gonna be great. So by the time you, you're headed to my house, you have this vision in your head of the, the table's all set, it's all nice, and the smells in the house. Like when you walk into the house for Thanksgiving dinner, everything smells wonderful, you know? and you just got this idea in your head of what it's gonna be like. And when you get there, nothing is ready for you. Now, somewhere in this room, my wife is listening to this message. She's coming to this service. So right now, she's probably breaking out in hives. This is the last thing she would ever let happen because she is the consummate hostess and everything is always um, in order. But let's just say that, that Wendy's not in charge and Jonathan's in charge. And when you come into the house, there's stuff strewn all over the place and the table is not cleared off. And there's no place for you to sit down. And you're kind of looking around like, all right, well, where's the food? And I look at you and I say, well, just open up the fridge. I think there's some leftovers in there. You know, just grab whatever you can and try to slop something together. You know, you're gonna think, well, that was a lot of buildup for nothing. Thing. Folks, in our relationship, most of us want passion so much that we build up toward passion in our relationship. It's going to be great. We're going to have this great passion in our relationship, but because we've been serving our spouse time and energy leftovers this whole time, it's like a massive letdown. And we're both scratching our heads going, why is it a letdown? It's a letdown because it's, we've been feeding it leftovers this whole time. Which, by the way, this gives me a chance to talk about one other thing that I didn't talk about in the Saturday night service. But when Wendy and I teach pre-married couples, we talk to them about sex whiplash, which is what we call a screeching, violent shift from the non-sexual part of your relationship to the sexual part of your relationship. I mean, you've never seen guys so downtrodden. When I tell our premarital class that I tell the guys, look, statistically speaking, you are not going to be having sex for 99.5% of your life. I mean, these poor guys are just, man, it finally sinks in. Oh my gosh. You know, but what we tell them is, look, if you view the time in your marriage that you are not absolutely in the middle of that act as being non-sexual and the 0.5% of your life that this is happening, and that would be a very robust sex life, then if that's, if that's the case, it's going to be like a screeching transition from the non-sexual part of our relationship to the sexual part of our relationship, and that won't work. I've got a almost 16-year-old daughter. I'm going to embarrass her for a second. Suppose that she is on a date with this guy and they're in our house and they're watching a movie and I walk in, they're sitting on the couch watching a movie and suppose they're doing something that is not overtly sexual. But as a dad, I go, I don't think I'm real comfortable with that. And I sit down with my daughter and I say, look, it's, it's not that that explicitly crossed the line, but that kind of thing tends to lead somewhere, 
right? So the, the same things that we try to coach our teenage kids, be careful because that tends to lead somewhere, those are the things that we forget to do when we get married, right? That's why we get into that screeching whiplash. We forget that we need to have not just, we need to consider our entire relationship sexual just to different degrees. Elsewise, it's going to be very, very unnatural. The Bible says the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Now, this doesn't mean some sort of abusive situation where it's basically like, I don't have any boundaries. That's not what this is about. We, we could as easily translate authority to priority access, right? Don't you hate it when you're getting on an airplane and they read all the different classifications of people that can get on the plane before you do, you know? It's just like all the important people get on the plane, all the rest of y'all. Tim Hawkins says the unwashed masses. All the rest of you unwashed masses, you wait out there until group nine gets on the plane, right? Um, But those other people have priority access. They get on first and they get the best seats. You know, what what this is saying is that of of, 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 of all of Jonathan, Wendy should get the first and the best. She shouldn't get the last and the worst. She shouldn't get the leftovers. She should get the first and the best. That's what I vowed to her, and that's what she deserves. Okay, so number two. My gosh, am I only on number two? Number two is dissatisfaction. And I gotta tell you, uh, 10 years of preaching on marriage, I've always wanted to preach on this passage, but I've never known how to do it. I've always been kind of at a loss for how to present this passage. So um, I finally feel like I've really gotten a word from the Lord on how to communicate this. This is in Proverbs 5.18, where the scripture says, let, notice that it starts with a verb, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated. And this, this also in some other translations is, is translated to- intoxicated. May you always be captivated or intoxicated by her love. But what I want you to notice is the verbs here, let, twice, let this happen. She's not telling the spouse to satisfy you. God could have commanded your spouse to satisfy you. Instead, God commanded you to be satisfied by your spouse. It's an interesting turn. And I've thought a lot of times about, well, how would, how would this best be communicated? And it suddenly hit me to think of this verse from a sort of algebraic direction, right? So now... I like algebra. I hate geometry, but I like algebra. Algebra is like a little puzzle. You get to solve all these little puzzles. And I've both studied and taught statistics, and so we use a lot of algebra and statistics, so I'm very comfortable with it. So when I read a problem set, and the, you know, the, the author of the problem says, all right, solve for this or that, and they'll say, let x equal 10, or let x equal this or that. Now, if you're familiar with algebra, you know, x is just a variable. It can be it can be anything. It's almost like this abstract cubbyhole in space that we're saying well, there's, there's X and we can put anything that we want in there. We can put a number in there. Uh, we can put a letter in there, whatever. Um, and so the, the person who's writing the problem says, if you want to get the right answer, make sure that you let X equal this value. If you don't let X equal this value, if you substitute something else, you won't get the right answer. And so what the scripture is saying here is that you need to let sexy equal your spouse, right? So for Jonathan, then the scripture is saying, let sexy equal Wendy. If Jonathan wants to talk about what is sexy, then Wendy has got to epitomize that. Wendy must be the epitome of what sexy is for Jonathan, just as your spouse needs to epitomize what sexy is for you. Why is this a problem? This is a problem because the culture is trying very, very hard to give you a value to put in that box. 
The culture wants to say, this is what sexy should look like. This is what sexy should act like. This is what sexy should be like. You say, no, 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 Jonathan, that's not how it is. It's just something that you automatically feel. It's a matter of attraction. No, it's not. I'll tell you why. If you look at what people have considered sexy through the ages, it has changed drastically. I mean, it changes with every generation. No, I promise you, sexy is an acquired taste. And generally speaking, the culture has been spoon feeding you what sexy is since you were a kid. And so then what happens is we get into a marriage and we think we know what sexy is because the culture has told us for so long what sexy is. And we're just hoping that our spouse will continue to line up with what we think sexy is supposed to be. But there will come a time where your spouse will start to kind of, you, you know, you've got your line calibrated to what the culture says. Eventually your spouse won't, won't match up. And you know what you'll start to do? You won't even mean to, but you'll start to kind of coax your spouse to be what you think sexy is supposed to be. You'll start, you'll, you'll start whether, you know, and it, by the way, we're not just talking about a tr- physical attractiveness. Ladies will probably put, well, if you ask guys what sexy is, right, and there's been research on this, you get a lot of physical characteristics things because guys are very visually oriented. If you ask ladies what sexy is, they're going to talk a lot more about character traits. They're going to talk about the way people interact with other people. But regardless, my point is, if you let the culture tell you what sexy is, eventually your spouse is going to be a disappointment and don't think they don't feel that. They do feel it. And what God is saying is, no, Jonathan, you go into the gear work of your mind and you calibrate it so that sexy equals windy. And you know what's great about that? That tells Wendy she will never, ever be a disappointment. She won't be a disappointment tomorrow. She won't be a disappointment a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. Because for Jonathan, sexy is her. She epitomizes what sexy is dissatisfaction creeps in so easily and we get the impression that there's nothing we can do about it. Well, you know, the attraction in our relationship, it's always amazing to me how abstract people are in my office. The attraction in our relationship has just taken a big hit. That's not what's happened. What's happened is they have an idea in their head of what sexy is and they just can't manage to push their spouse into it. Dissatisfaction. The third one is damage. This is one I wish I could just avoid talking about altogether. But it's often what's walking into my office. I told my dad before I did this message, I said, you know, dad, when I first started out, infidelity was such a small portion of what I was working with in my office. Today it has swelled to a majority. A majority of the couples that I'm working with, infidelity is is a challenge, it's a problem. And by the way, guys, I'm just gonna tell you right now, that just because pornography may not involve a person in the room with you currently that you know and have a relationship with, that doesn't make it any less cheating on your spouse. I guarantee you what, what pornography, and by the way, there's an idea now bouncing around in our culture that, that being involved with pornography is just a normal male thing and everybody should just get over it. Let me tell you what, guys, if you get involved with that, you are forcing your wife to compete with something she can never compete with. And she knows it and she feels it. Look at what the scripture says. Drink water from your own well. Share love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the street having sex with just anyone? How's that for straight talk? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Now why is the scripture saying you should reserve it for yourselves? It's an interesting turn of a phrase. You know, there's a sense in which passion really fuels a relationship. 
And you kind of feel that. When the relationship is very passionate, it's almost like your relationship is running on jet fuel. And when, the relation, when passion takes a hit in the relationship, it sort of slows things down a little bit. And God is saying, look, you only have so much passion to spend anyway, so you better make sure you spend it in your relationship. If you want your relationship to do well, make sure you're spending your passion in your relationship. You don't want to spend it outside your relationship. At that point, you are starving your relationship for energy. Let me ask you a question, because... As I've dealt with couples where infidelity has been a big thing, I ask this question. It's one of the first questions I ask, and I usually get crickets and blank stares when I ask it. The question I ask is, what are the ground rules in your relationship? And it's not that when I ask the couple this, they think that they don't have ground rules. They think they do, but the issue is they never talked about it before. They think that it's understood. She thinks he understands what the ground rules are, and he thinks she understands what the ground rules are, but I guarantee you the reason they're in my office is because the ground rules aren't very clear. Now, I guarantee you there was probably a point where somebody crossed the line, and they knew at that point they were crossing a line, but far earlier there was crossing of more blurry lines, and not everybody's sure what the boundaries are. And let me tell you, it's very important in marriage to know what the ground rules are. Wendy and I are kind of antiques in this department, but it works for us. We follow sort of a modified version, I guess, of what people call the Billy Graham rule. So that means that we don't ride alone in cars with members of the opposite sex. We don't um, eat alone with members of the opposite sex. We don't go hang out um, with somebody of the opposite sex by ourselves. You won't find me in a room uh, with, a, with another lady that, where there's not a massive panel window that anybody can walk by at any time and, and, and see. We, I get that for a lot of people, they would think, well, that's just absolutely oppressive. Those rules are really strict. Okay, fine. Not everybody has to have the same rules we do, but you do need to know what your ground rules are. They need to be clear. When is the line being crossed? And the two of you need to have that discussion. We're going to talk in a minute before we're done. I'm, uh, I'm going to give you a little homework assignment, like I give all my couples. I give homework assignments because um, I'm not that guy that people sit across from and we just chat for an hour and then we're done. I want to see progress, so I give, I give homework assignments. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment before we're done. The fourth thing, so the fourth D is disconnection. And this one is really important, especially for the guys to pay attention to. It's important for the guys and the ladies, but especially guys. Um, if you want to amp up the passion in your life, so guys in general, statistically speaking, are looking for an increase in the passion in their, um, in their marriage. They're looking for an increase in frequency. I get that. Guys, if that's where you're at, this is where all antennas should be up because this is very, very important. So this is what the scripture says. And this is Jesus speaking in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and do what? Hold fast to his wife. You only hold fast to something if the temptation is to let it get pulled away from you. You're only asked to really hold tight to something if the natural propensity is for it to get away from you. And we said earlier in the message that when, when the real world meets romance, what tends to happen is we tend to sort of drift away from that passion that we first started with. And that's why we have to hold so strongly to it, hold to the connection. And by the way, this mention of the two shall become one flesh is a euphemism for sex. So look at the order. First, there is the holding fast, and then there is sex. For a lady, nothing would be more, nothing would be more detached or not genuine than to be in a sexual relationship with somebody they don't feel connected to. That absolutely would make no sense at all. And by the way, let, let me give you this. So this may be helpful. Sometimes... Uh, you know, sometimes I don't know of the things that I share with couples in my office, what's going to be helpful and what's not going to be helpful. Um, but this is one that I've had multiple couples come back and say, Jonathan, this helped us so much when we started to understand this. 
So for her, guys, you need to understand that for her, sex is the destination of connection. And for him, sex is the doorway to connection. So guys have sex to feel connected. Women have sex because they feel connected. So what that means, guys, is you have to understand that before you expect her to be genuinely, authentically engaged with you, she has to feel connected to you. If you're asking her to be connected and engaged and passionate toward you and she doesn't feel connected, you are asking her to fake something that isn't there. There's got to be a connection to start with. Ladies, one of the ways that you can connect with guys, and this is research-based, one of the ways that you can connect with your man is to do a shared activity together. Now, I know when you were first dating, what you were thinking, you were thinking, well, someday, um, when we've been married for a while, we'll, we'll have these great talks, you know? Um, we'll, we'll go hang out together at a coffee shop or a restaurant, we'll sit across from each other, we'll make deep, soulful eye contact, and we'll talk about everything that's going on in our lives and hopes and dreams and feelings, and that, that ain't gonna happen, you know? You're gonna sit across from him at a coffee shop and you're gonna be like, so... How do you feel, you know? He's going to say, I feel all right. I'm not hungry. I'll be caffeinated in a few minutes. I'll be better, you know? But then again, this is reasonable. Our friend Les Parrott says, if you, if you ever watch this, guys don't call other guys and go, hey, you want to get together and talk? That's yeah, not, not really our thing, right? We get together, we do something together. So if you want to, and by the way, this is especially true if you feel like you are literally trying to, to pull and coax words out of your husband because he doesn't talk very often. My wife doesn't have that problem, but maybe you have that problem with your husband. One of the ways to get him talking is to do something together. Find an activity that you both enjoy and do something together. But guys, this is where I really need you to pay attention because if you really want to connect to your wife, I'm going to give you one of the best tips anybody can ever give you. And that is to be very cautious about the end-of-day recap. The end-of-day recap is so important, right? Because the way that we recap our days is very different. Guys, the way that our communication works is we're kind of like CDs, right? We skip to whatever the salient track is, and we press play. How are you doing? We skip to that track. I'm doing fine. That's all that's on the track, right? You want something else, you're going to have to ask us a different question, right? Um, So it's very sequential. Ladies, on the other hand, it's like it's on reel-to-reel tape, right? A lot of reel-to-reel tape. And it's all in sequential order, and it's all in story form, and it's, it's so if you want to know how her day was, and you, and you ask her how her day was, you better be ready to get the full story of how her day was from the beginning to end, and she's going to give you a lot of detail, and she's going to give you a lot of emotional information, how she felt about what happened at the time, how she feels now about telling you how she felt about what happened at the time, and she's, she may, if she loves you a lot, and only if she loves you a lot, she may act it out for you with voices so that you know who the hero and the villain of that particular story was. You don't want to lose track of that. For a lot of guys, this is about the point where they start to glaze over. It's a lot of information right now. Uh, Don't glaze. Because she is trying to connect with you. See, so many guys want to amp the passion up in their relationship, but they don't understand that every time their wife tries to connect with them, she's trying for the same thing. She's trying to bring the passion level up in the relationship too. But if she gets shut down when she's trying to communicate and tell her stories, it ain't going to happen. Now, why, why does she 
tell her stories that way because she has so many words, Jonathan, so many words, you know? No, it's not that. It's not that. See, in order for her to feel connected to you, she has to experience her day with you. But you weren't there for her day. You were somewhere else. So by telling the story of her day, what she is literally doing is she's grabbing you by the collar and she is dropping you into the middle of her day so that she can experience her day with you so that she can feel connected. Ladies, am I close? Am I anywhere in the ballpark? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. So this is her opportunity to feel like we're together. But what happens when you get your phone out and you start scrolling through your phone when she's telling you about your day or you sit down and you start to turn on the TV. I'm listening, sweetie. Keep going, right? Um, what you basically are communicating is, I don't really want to be connected to you. I don't really want to experience your day with you. It doesn't really matter to me. And then there's the assumption that, but we're going to have really red hot passion. Well, if you do, it's not going to be genuine. And then you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be in my office. She's not genuine. She's not into it like I am. Well, she's not into it because she's not connected. So I'm going to give you some homework. And I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you to go to your local store and get four things. You're going to get an egg timer. You're going to get a picture. Of, well, you're not going to find a picture of your first date at a store. Hopefully you have a picture when you first got together somewhere, right? A pencil and some paper and a calendar. Here's how you're going to use these things. You're going to use the egg timer to spend some time with your spouse with no distractions. No distractions. So this is time where you spend time with them, and you guys decide. I'm not going to tell you how many minutes to put on the egg timer. You guys decide how much is a reasonable amount of time where the world is blocked out and it's just the two of you, right? Now, you'd say, Jonathan, you are so technologically backward, telling us to get an egg timer. I have a timer on my iPhone. No, you're not taking your iPhone in the room with you. Right? This is why you got to go technology old school. If I let you take the iPhone in the room with you, you're going to be scrolling through. Yeah, go ahead, sweetie. Whatever you just said. Sounds good to me. Right? And she may ask you, what did I just say? And, and guys, we have that thing that God gave us, the phonological loops. We can say back the last six seconds of whatever, just, whatever anybody just said to us. But if you ask us earlier than those six seconds, we're in real trouble. Right? Um, no phones. No distractions. An egg timer. Figure out some time. And you know what? You'll be, you'll be amazed how powerful that time is. Here's why you need a picture of your first date. One of the reasons why dissatisfaction seeps into a relationship is familiarity. We know the wonderful things about our spouse. How do I know you know the wonderful things about your spouse? Because God forbid your spouse were to die tomorrow and we held your funeral and I preached your spouse's funeral, you would get up and you would talk for 45 minutes about every wonderful thing about your spouse. But it would take something almost that severe to shock you out of the familiarity of it and just the assumption that it will be there tomorrow and that it's just going to continue being wonderful in your life for you to realize how wonderful those things are. I would prefer that we not have to go that far. I would prefer that you take that picture and remember what got you together in the first place. Remember the things. I've talked to couples that were in the middle of terrible crises. I asked them about their first date. I asked them about how they got together. And without fail, they'll crack a smile and they'll start to talk about how awesome it was to meet each other and to get together. Take that picture, flip it over, and write a list of the, th of the things that attracted you to your spouse. And write a list of the things that you tend to take for granted in them. And you'll be surprised how quickly that dissatisfaction will flip for you. You're going to take a pencil and some paper and do one of the hardest things that any married couple ever does. You're going to sit down and you're going to discuss your ground rules with each other. 
What are the ground rules, especially as far as members of the opposite sex are concerned? What is crossing the line and what is not crossing the line? Make sure that it's clear between the two of you and make sure that we're talking not just about big violations, but we're talking about little violations, right? Uh, Andy Stanley, pastor of a church in Atlanta, Georgia, talks about guardrails and the fact that when you're driving along a mountainside, they don't put the guardrail right up against the edge because if you were to brush against it, you wouldn't have any time to course correct. You'd still go over the side of the mountain. One of the reasons why Wendy and I have such stringent ground rules in our relationship is we put that guardrail well within the safety zone so that if we were to brush up against that guardrail, we would have time to course correct before something really bad happens. What are your ground rules? And then fourth, a calendar. The calendar is to plan time alone together having fun. Right? So we talk about connection or disconnection. One of my favorite marital researchers says this. When it comes to intimacy and connection in marriage, um, there is no substitute for time alone together having fun. In the research, it's still the number one formula for the bond increasing in the relationship. So what you're going to do is you're going to take that calendar, and you're either going to every two weeks or every week, whatever you're able to do, you're going to put on that calendar a, a, a time that you're going to get together and have fun. Now, why is that important? Because as they say in the theater, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. You can say, well, we're going we're gonna to make sure we do date nights. But if you don't put it on the calendar, my, my hunch is it ain't going to happen. So you take that calendar and you're going to plan it and then you're going to devote that time and say, whatever it takes, we're going to put our marriage first. We're not going to serve our marriage leftovers. We're going to have the date nights and we're going to do this. We're going to build the connection in our relationship. The most important thing I can tell you before I let you go is that you have a choice about the passion in your relationship. It's not something that's passive. It's not something that either happens to you or doesn't happen to you. You have a choice. You can either invest in this or you can just let it be what it's gonna be naturally. My promise to you is if you will invest in this and make it a point that you are gonna do everything that you can to bolster the passion in your relationship, it will work. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for everybody that's here today and for all of those that are watching online around the world. Father, we pray that you would help strengthen our marriages during this difficult time. Help us to live out a life and a marriage life that's honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.